Tony, very, very nice to see you. It's again, it's been, it's been a long time since we last saw each other. Uh, but actually the funny thing is that we, you know, keep running into each other um, more than I see other people. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably because you come through New York in various different formats quite a bit. And, yes. and you're always very good about asking me if I want to come hear you, which I always do. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for that. Hey, so, um, Usually, you know, with these uh, conversations, uh, I try not to really give much context. You know, they're just, just about like a free uh, conversation. But in the case of you, I, I was thinking it may be good if you tell us a little bit about you. <laughs> okay. Um, well, I, my name is Tony Jabal. I live in Manhattan, where I've lived for just over 30 years now, but I'm a native of Seattle. And um, I was very fortunate to grow up with, as the youngest of eight children. And so I uh, had all kinds of music in my life from the very beginning. My parents were loved classical music and, and American musical theater. And my older brothers and sisters were into classical music. And my eldest sister was an early student of methomusicology. So in the early 1960s, when I was a, a child, I began hearing music from all over the place, India, Africa, China, Japan, all kinds of stuff, flamenco music, just all different kinds of stuff. And my sort of middle older siblings were very much into the burgeoning rock scene. So my brother Bob would bring home the first Led Zeppelin album and Are You Experienced? And of course, all the Beatles and everything, Stones. And then eventually Neil Young and different things like that. But as a child growing up, it all just sounded like music to me. I, it, I didn't distinguish between classical music and Indian music and Hendrix and these different things. It was all just music. And I didn't understand that any of it was uh, more or less important or revolutionary. I didn't, you know, at, at the age of, I don't know, seven or eight years old, are you experienced was really cool, but I certainly didn't understand that it was revolutionary, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So all this stuff was just music to me. And um, my eldest sister, the one who was an ethnomusicology student took me to all kinds of crazy concerts as well. And, um, I began playing guitar in imitation of my older siblings. I began playing Neil Young songs and Buffalo Springfield and all those kinds of things, Joni Mitchell, that kind of stuff. Um, I don't know if this is more detail than you were looking for. No, 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 no. I, I <laughs> actually wondering how old were you when you picked up a guitar I was 13 for the first time? When I began playing the guitar. My, my buddy, Alan Cady, whom I'd met in fifth grade, and we were very close friends up until high school years when we kind of drifted apart, although we've reconnected on Facebook in a wonderful way. Uh, he had a Stella guitar, classic Stella sunburst acoustic guitar with the action, you know, the strings were this far off the neck. And he wasn't using it, so I asked him if I could borrow it, and that was my first guitar. Had mm -hmm. it for a couple of years. And uh, it was everything a Stella, Stella is supposed to be cripplingly hard to play terrible sound but i could start to play uh, those old neil young songs i am a child and things like that and then eventually in i guess late junior high early high school years my 
older, my next oldest sister, Emily, became friends with a, a marvelous guitarist by the name of Chrissy Shefts, who you can hear on albums by Seal and Heart and other, other rock bands. Um, Chrissy was just fantastic, and she introduced us to all kinds of different things, particularly the West Coast funk scene, Tower of Power, and a band called Full Moon with the extraordinary guitarist Buzzy Faton, all mm -hmm. different kinds of things. And um, I, I would watch her play, and she had the most beautiful right hand, just relaxed and smooth. I aspired to that right hand. She was my first guitar hero, Chrissy Shefts. Mm -hmm. And then uh, after her was Buzzy Faton. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I started playing that kind of stuff. I took some some jazz guitar lessons in Seattle from a man named Chuck Bennett, who was one of the two jazz guitar teachers in Seattle. And Chuck said to me, you know, if you practiced, you could be pretty good. You've got the head for this. I didn't really pay attention. I was 15 maybe at that time, 15, 16. I was much more interested in the, the uh, let's call them the peripherals of the music scene. <laughs> I know <laughs> and, what you mean. <laughs> and I also was sort of heading, I was, I had, there was a lot of momentum in my life to go into the, the sciences. I came from a family of physicists and astronomers, and that's kind of where everybody thought I was headed. But things didn't turn out that way because in the summer of my junior year of high school, I was sent to a summer science camp sponsored by the National Science Foundation. It was there that I discovered two things. One was that I did not want to be a scientist. Um, I didn't like the people there in particular. They were fine, but I didn't feel like I had much in common with them. And I also, because I grew up in this family of academics and scientists, I knew exactly what the rest of my life was going to look like. Mm -hmm. And yeah. it was, it was, it's not a boring life for those for whom it's a fascinating life. But for me, just knowing exactly what my life was going to look like was, was terrifying. You know, I'd go to, I'd go to college, I'd study math and physics, I'd get my bachelor's degree, and then I'd go somewhere and get a PhD and be a postdoc somewhere under somebody and, uh, and then have a career in research and teaching at some university for the rest of my life. And to me, it just, there was no excitement there. There was nothing. Mm -hmm. I, I already I had already been living that life <laughs> my entire life. And I loved the sciences. I loved the training that I got in discriminating the possible from the not possible, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. uh, but as a life, it didn't appeal to me. So that was the one thing I learned that summer. And the other thing I that happened to me that summer was that um, somebody played King Crimson for me for the first time. And it was the album USA, which was at the time their last album. Mm -hmm. And from the first moment of hearing the guitar, I thought to myself, that's what I want in my music. Whatever that is that I'm hearing, that's what I want. I don't know what it is, <laughs> but that's what I want. Completely changed my life. Um, uh, so uh, it took a few years for the momentum to shift from science to music. I wound up studying math and chemistry and physics for the first couple of years of college and then took some time off and came back as a music student mm -hmm. studied a ton of ethnomusicology i was within i got a degree in musical engineering which was a pilot program for audio engineering students um, 
I was within one class of getting a degree in ethnomusicology, but I already knew that a degree in ethnomusicology wasn't going to do me any good whatsoever. So I never mm -hmm. took that last class, but I was lucky to study ethnomusicology at the University of Washington when two of the leaders in the field were there, Fred Lieberman and Bob Garfius, and a bunch of other great people. And they brought musicians from all over the world to teach their students. So I studied for three years with Ustad Zia Mohun Dagar, great Drupad player of the Rudra Veena. And my last year there, I um, they brought two Turkish musicians, uh, Neshtet Yashar, and Niazi Sayan, the Ney player, Neshta Yashar played the Turkish tambour. And that, again, completely changed my life. I thought that I was going to be mostly interested in Indian music, although I'd mm -hmm. heard all kinds of things at that point. Um, but the Turkish musicians utterly changed me. The depth and passion and excitement of that music <clears throat> changed my life into another direction. So I then went to Turkey for a year to study Turkish music after I graduated. How old were and you when, how old were you? I was 23, now? 23 years old when I went to Istanbul. Mm -hmm. I had no idea what I was doing. You know, I was a, I was a fairly sheltered kid. I had actually been outside of Seattle for a year when I was five years old. My family went to Holland, to Amsterdam for a year. My father took a sabbatical leave, but I didn't really understand that I was, you know, thousands of miles away from Seattle. Yeah. Um, and I had spent two summers in Colorado studying music with Ralph Towner and the members of Oregon. But other than that, I had not really been outside of Seattle very much. Um, a few weeks in Europe with my parents in my middle teens, trying to make up for the fact that I was only five when I was there for a year. Um, so I kind of thought I'll go to Turkey for a year. It'll be like watching a movie. I'll sit there and kind of watch things. I didn't realize that it was 360 degrees, 24 hours a day being in a country which I was completely unfamiliar with. It was, mm -hmm. it was tough. It was very mm -hmm. tough, but of course a, a watershed experience for me as a, as a person and as a musician came back from that in uh, 1983, I guess. So how long did you stay there in Istanbul? I stayed there for 11 months, mm -hmm. almost a year. Mm -hmm. And then a year after I came back, Guitarcraft came along. And oh, uh, yeah. I was uh, 1985, just a, a year and a quarter, a year and a half after I came back. And that was the next step for me. And, and now here I am. That was 35 <laughs> years ago. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. I, you know, I knew a few things, but um, like just the, the quick succession of events, basically in the early eighties, then uh, seems seems a lot. But I think that's also the age at which that really happens to um, a young man, right? Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was lucky to have these opportunities. I, I was not looking for them in particular, but things came to me, and I said yes. <laughs> Thank goodness I said yes I, I don't know you know it was a big part of me that was very scared to do these things but I did them anyway yeah when you just mentioned that um, when you realized that you weren't that you weren't interested in the path of becoming a scientist uh, and the main reason for that wasn't that you didn't like sciences but that you could already foresee what your life would be like that, that was very similar to what happened to me because I went on, I did civil service in a hospital mm -hmm. and I sort of like kind of drew more of a general uh, 
uh, understanding out of that experience that, you know, all these people who work there, they sort of already know what they're going to do in 25 years or 30 years. And, and I, you know, I sort of understood that, okay, um, um, you know, like Robert Fripp, he kind of gave me the advice, you know, as, as well as other teachers of mine not to study music. And so that's why I then went into psychology, which is a science. Mm-hmm. And, um, but at the same time, I knew, okay, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to completely dedicate my life to music. And um, also interesting, like I knew about the Turkish music uh, and the importance of Turkish music, uh, music in your life, but that you actually were in in some sort of love also with Indian music before that, that's new to me. Actually. Yeah, three, three and a half years I studied with the stud Zia Mahudin Dagar and we never made it past Rag Yemen. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, Cause I was meeting with him twice a week in the morning and not living with him 24 hours a day where I could really learn a raga. But we got fairly deeply into one or two pieces in Rag Yemen. And, and which, which instrument do you play? I was actually, it was interesting, Marcus. I began playing the Sarod mm-hmm. um, because they had one at the university. Mm-hmm. Um, Dagar Saad played the Rudravina, which was this huge, deep instrument, extraordinary. And mm-hmm. I can tell you a couple stories about, about him and that instrument. But uh, so I started with Sarod, and the Sarod has a flat metal fingerboard, fretless. And you play it, you grow the nails out on your left hand and your nails act as frets. So you slide up and down the strings and you can play the microtones and the bends and all that thing. Mm -hmm. So I started doing that, but I could not play the guitar with long nails on my left hand. Mm -hmm. So I said to Dagar Saab, I I can't continue like this. And he said, bring in your guitar. So for the first year I played solo, the second two years I played guitar. And it was a compromise, obviously. Um, But one of the reasons we stuck with the one raga was that it was very, the notes could more or less be played on the guitar. There weren't any yeah, 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 odd yeah, yeah. tones that you couldn't, couldn't deal with. There were some ornaments that I couldn't play and things like that. But um, Dagar Saab, uh, the, the Drupad tradition in Indian music is a very ancient tradition. It's much older than what we hear mostly, the tradition of Ravi Shankar, for example which is a, it's, it's a lighter tradition, if you can imagine. The Drupad music is heavier than mm-hmm. the Indian music that we hear, um, much slower. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Kial music, which is what Ravi Shankar and, and the rest of everybody plays in India is basically sped up Drupad music. I, I know I could probably be <laughs> arrested for saying that, but... but um, Dagarsa would play these long, he, he didn't have a percussionist with him when he was in Seattle. So he would give concerts and it would just be the alap section, the long improvised introduction to whichever rag he was playing. But he would be playing along, it begins very slow and then it gets a little more rhythmic and so on. And he would get more rhythmic, more rhythmic. And then he would hit a note somewhere in some rhythmic phrase and stop and bend this one note and at time would stop. And that is an effect I attempted to recreate in one of my pieces on the album Native of the Rain. Mm-hmm. In the piece Awakening at the, at the beginning of that, you'll hear I st- play a low note and bend it, mm-hmm. attempting to stop time like my, like my <laughs> great teacher did. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I had uh, some experience with Indian classical music because I met a teacher in, in Brussels, you know, between 93 and 96, I saw him a few times. And he played the uh, Surbaha, so the bass, uh, yeah. bass sitar. And, and he also was kind of like, I don't know which tradition really he came from because I, I didn't have a sense for that really back then. Uh, um, but he also did these amazing uh, like harmonics, he, like this, his alap was like mostly just all harmonics on the instrument, which was really, really um, fantastic. And just this idea um, for me, like to zoom in into one, uh, well, the, the raga is much more than a mode in, in Western uh, music, obviously, but like this, this idea that you could like really dive in deep into this one sound world that seems uh, rather simplistic on the surface. That was, that was like really very, very important for me. And I, I think I learned quite a bit, even though I, I, at that time, I didn't know how to really take it very seriously. Yeah. Yeah. Which, I felt the same actually. In, in in retrospect, I would have done quite a bit more, even with my year in Turkey than I did. Uh, as well as studying with Dagar Saab, I was fortunate that the university ethnomusicology program brought a, a drummer from South India, mm -hmm. or G. Dorai. So I played a little Mridangam, South Indian drum, and a South Indian singer, T. Brinda, Brindama, who taught me Indian solfege before I really learned Western solfege. So. Yeah, which it sounds much nicer, right? I think so. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> hey, so um, just kind of like, because I, I don't know what uh, ethnomusicology really entails. Like what, what is, uh, was, the, was like studying that or like, did you have like specific or, or a better way to understand or to be open for uh, these musical studies uh, based on the, science of like the musicology is that there was that helpful well in in those days this was the the middle and late 1970s we're talking about and and our understanding of cultural biases and cultural appropriation and those kind of things that didn't really exist yet <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, we didn't know about that stuff and at a place like the University of Washington, Seattle, it was a major school. We had one of the major ethnomusicology departments, but Seattle at that time was probably 85% white or more. And, you know, we were a bunch of white people for the most part, studying mm -hmm. music from everywhere else. And um, the, the really illustrative point here is that the ethnomusicology department at the University of Washington, which along with UCLA, Wesleyan, and a couple of other places in, in the United States was one of the top of the musicology schools was in the music building, but mm -hmm. it was not in the music building proper, nor was it in the basement of the music building. It was in the sub basement of the music <laughs> building. That's where they stuck the ethnomusicology department, which kind of tells you yes. the, the parameters we were operating under, you know, for most, students of music in the United States at that time, and probably still now, the things have loosened up somewhat. Music was what happened, you know, within 500 miles of Vienna between 1600 and 1900. That was yeah. music. Everything that fell outside of those boundaries or that time period was something else. It wasn't mm -hmm. quite music. Mm -hmm. So I was fortunate that I had these people with wider ears around me 
and that I could study with them. And here, you know, I took the first thing I did is I took a year long survey course, music from all over the world. I still have my notes from that course. We listened to everything. It was, it was amazing. All kinds of crazy stuff from all, you know, it sounds crazy to us, but the musical cultures of everywhere. And, and of course we say the music of India, there are dozens of musical traditions in India, Africa, there are hundreds of musical, thousands of musical traditions, Indonesia, the fifth most populous country of the world and made up of islands has thousands and thousands of musical cultures. Some of them are matriarchal cultures rather than patriarchal cultures. There's all kinds of stuff out there that we never uh, would never encounter, especially as you know, US citizens so sheltered and, and so convinced of our centrality to the world. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, were there any stuff? Were there any specific methods taught from musicology? Like how would you guys listen? Um, well, the first, the year long course I took was what was called a survey course, which is basically what it sounds like. We just listened to a lot of stuff mm -hmm. and talked a little bit about how we might hear it, excuse me, in terms of our own musical ideas, rhythm and harmony and, excuse me, form and so on. And then a little bit, you know, the, the study of ethnomusicology has sometimes been lumped in with music studies and sometimes with anthropology, because it's clear from early on that you can't separate the music from the culture. Mm -hmm. You know, you, well, you can, but it is all together. It's like anything else. It's, you. You know, you can separate something into its elements, but you're not going to have the complete picture unless you look at the whole. And of course, our, our ability to look at the whole is, is completely biased by our, our own cultural upbringing and so on. But we would, we would look at all these different angles of things. And some history, of course, was involved. Um, for example, one of the things I, I learned about Japanese music was that the court music of Japan the gagaku music and so on, is actually probably closer to the court music of China of a thousand years ago or so than Chinese court music was because Chinese court music evolved, but the mm -hmm. Japanese had this way of taking something and solidifying it mm -hmm. <laughs> and keeping it the same exactly as they heard it. Mm -hmm. So this is the, this is the truism or it was in the 1970s. I don't know how it's looked at now, but so we would examine things like that. And then I got, um, I got sucked into studying some of these areas more deeply and was given that opportunity by the musicians that were brought in. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, so we listened to it through our, through our own filters without knowing it for the most part. But we did, we were introduced at, at, in, at certain times, you know, we, we heard about, we, we studied the, system of ragas and talas and things like that and how that was different from our understanding of these things yes um so the question like i asked this because you were saying that the turkish musicians that you or the turkish music you encountered then uh, uh really drew you in so deeply that you needed to go there to study um and I think it's it's fascinating fascinating within the context of you having heard a lot of music from around the world, and then there is this particular country or this particular style of music that had that power over you. Let's say, yeah. uh, do you still remember um, the feeling of first encountering 
those cells? I certainly do. I certainly do. Um, and there, there are there are a number of aspects to it. Um, some of it was, I mean, I, one of the reasons I guess I was interested in Indian music was for the music, but also because I had an interest in Indian philosophy and spirituality and had some people in my life who were very deeply involved with that stuff in it, in both an academic and a, a really um, all-consuming kind of way, you know, not not to cast dispersions on anybody, but not people who were just sort of doing yoga postures and things like that, but people who were seriously studying Indian philosophy and spirituality. And that drew me in and interested me in Indian music. And peripherally, then I got interested in Sufism and various things like that. And the Turkish music had a very clear connection to the, that tradition. But yeah, there was some power in the music, some passion that was just beyond anything else I'd heard in the in the Turkish, the Turkish thing. Some depth, some and some of it was also, it felt like a broader acceptance of human experience to me. It was uh -huh. earthier. It was earthier. It wasn't quite so like let's go to the world of the gods and see what's happening there. It's like this is this is our lives here. You know, a lot of these people people ride horses around. This is the sound of our horses, <laughs> things like that, but still very deep, you know, using these things symbolically and, and uh, you know, um, I, when I went to Turkey, I had heard pretty much only the Turkish classical tradition, what they call the, the classical tradition there, which is mostly the Mevlevi music, the music of the whirling dervishes. And it's a beautiful, stately, gorgeous tradition, very deeply developed um, over hundreds and hundreds of years. And I got there and a close friend of mine from the University of Washington, um, Irene Markov, had been there for a year. She was working on her PhD and I called her up and my the person I was living with for the first few weeks till I found a place on my own was a was a diplomat, an American diplomat. And I told him about my friend and he said, well, I'm having this party, you know, it's a diplomatic party. Why don't you invite her to come and we can meet her? So I called Irene and said, would you like to come to this dinner? And she said, sure. And she said, let me, let me bring a friend of mine, a Turkish musician. He's pretty famous and, uh, and he might play after dinner, who knows? So I, I didn't know any of these traditions or anything. So. So I checked with my, my, he was a distant relative, my, my diplomatic friend. And he said, sure, she can bring her friend. So she shows up with, at the party with this man, Ali Akbar Chichek. And everybody, all the guests at the party were in shock and awe because Ali Akbar Chichek is a very, was a very famous musician in Turkey at that time. He was a Bektashi Sufi in Alevi, mystical Sufi tradition from Eastern Turkey. And after dinner, he, we were sitting around on the couch and he pulls out his saws, one of these guys, but about twice as big as that one, a divan saws because it's the size of a couch. And he played this piece called Haidar, which he had written, it was his most famous piece. And I think my jaw was on the ground for about 10 days afterwards. I had never heard anything like this. There's actually, I can point you to a, a recording on the web of him playing this piece and it will blow your mind. 
<laughs> love to hear it. That, that was my that was my discovery of Turkish folk music with this guy sitting six feet away from me playing this amazing instrument this extraordinary stuff with all kinds of odd meters and strange notes and and driving rhythms and all this stuff and that's what they call folk music there <laughs> so uh, so that then drew me I, I my my classical music teacher Nejda Yashar um, he had grown up playing the the folk music so he understood when I said to him I have to spend some time doing this too <laughs> mm-hmm. and you did yes I did I, uh, I got a couple of these instruments and took some lessons and this one with the pickup in the middle is because you know I even even without any sort of theoretical sense of this idea of cultural appropriation I never really wanted to play Turkish music in public much. I, I had a trio with with my friend Irene and another friend Peter Lipman, and we played a few places in Seattle. And you know, there was no other way for people to hear Turkish music at that time in the early early eighties. So we felt okay about it. And Irene was a really she was a scholar. She really she was deeply into it. Um, mm-hmm. She got into trouble in the ethnomusicology world for getting too deeply into it. But, <laughs> So we did that, but then I, you know, I kind of thought I can't, you know, I, I spent a year there and that's nothing. There's people who grow up in this tradition and this music is sacred to them. The word balama, which is another name for these instruments means bound. And it supposedly refers to the bound winding of the frets, but it really means being bound to the music. You are yoked irrevocably to this music and mm-hmm. it's a serious, serious thing to them. And I, you know, it moved me tremendously and it informs everything I've done ever since, but I don't put myself forward as a representative of Turkish music at all. Um, but <laughs> that said, um, when I was playing with Trey Gunn in the Trey Gunn band, we recorded one piece that I agreed to play Saz on. Mm-hmm. And then Trey said, well, now that you've played it on the record, you have to bring it live and play live. <laughs> so I had my friend Brian Nelson, the amazing luthier in Seattle, stick a pickup in, in this Saz and uh, took it on the road. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it would have surprised me if you had uh, then decided to just dedicate your life to one particular style or tradition of music. Uh, you know, like you said, you were not interested in kind of like knowing where you're going to be intellectually and musically in five years, right? Yeah. So, um, so it was hearing King Crimson and then hearing like the Sufi music. And then just a year later or so, you went um, to guitar craft, which sort of brings... Uh, those traditions t- together in some way. In some way, yeah. yeah it's certainly <laughs> open to them all. Yes, yes. Yeah, so what, what happened then? So how was that? <laughs> well, that was, that, was very, that was a lot of fun. I actually, I actually, when I was 16 or 17 years old, I gave a guitar lesson to, to a guy in Seattle, um, a single guitar lesson, and he loved it so much that he gave me his mint condition copy of The Cheerful Insanity of Giles, Giles, and Fripp. And then he said to me, you know, my sister, or a f- sister of a friend of mine went to school with Robert Fripp in England. He was a huge Fripp fanatic too, this, this other, other guy, Doug Tingball. 
Um, so he said, I, have, I can get the address from her and we can write to Robert at this school he's at. So he got the address and we both wrote to Robert in 1975 or something. And uh, some couple of months later, I got a letter back, which I actually have framed. My girlfriend insisted said I should get it framed. Well, maybe it was Tom. Tom Redmond said I should get it framed. Yes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think Robert still has the letter I wrote him. Mm -hmm. wow. So I, I said, you know, I love your music. It was a short letter. I love your music. If you're ever teaching, I'd love to know. And he wrote back and said, the address you have is out of date. <laughs> <laughs> um, I can always be reached through my management company, EG. And uh, if I ever decide to teach, it'll be in the guitar magazines. So you can look for me there. And then I eventually started doing some work with some people associated with Claymont, the J.G. Bennett School, um, who, had, who were living in Seattle. And um, one of them, they, they eventually moved back to Claymont, but one of them wrote to me and said, King Crimson's going on tour and I've told Robert about you and he's interested to meet you. And uh, he'll, if you go to the show in Seattle, there'll be a backstage pass for you and you can go backstage and meet Robert Fripp. So of course I was thrilled. Uh, went to the show. There was no backstage pass. Nobody, nobody had ever heard my name there. Uh, <laughs> I, had a, I had a fun experience trying to wait outside afterwards with you know this big crowd of people, and I was thinking, oh, this this really sucks. And there was a car across the street, and uh, I was I was standing across the street where the car was because I didn't want to be with this crowd of people with their autograph pages and things and eventually adrian came out the stage door and everybody crowded around him well actually the first thing that happened is a guy came out carrying two guitars and got into the car near where i was standing and i thought oh, that's interesting and then adrian comes out everybody crowds around him and i noticed that the car drove off and a few moments later i happened to look down the street to the main entrance of the theater the car had pulled out and Robert came out the main entrance of the theater and got in the car. I thought, okay. <laughs> yeah. So then the car pulled up and Adrian got in and they drove off. And I got home and there was a message from Robert on my answering machine. Um, he had been unable to meet with me for various reasons at the at the show, but he wanted me to call him back at his hotel. So I did. We talked for about an hour. He was very interested to hear about my experiences in Turkey. This is 1984. Mm -hmm. um, there were new residential courses happening at Claymont. He was going to go to one, recommended that I go to one. I decided against it for various reasons. I had, I had been about to go to Claymont when I got my student visa to go to Turkey for a year. So I went to Turkey instead of Claymont mm -hmm. in 1982. Um, but then a year later, Guitarcraft came along. Mm -hmm. So I showed up on the third Guitarcraft course, which at that time was the last one, the final mm -hmm. Guitarcraft course. There were three that had been set up and um at the first meal i sat at the head table okay. <laughs> and with one other guy from the course and uh, this is in west virginia you, you you've been to claymont yes you no i haven't been there been to claymont okay um it's a big old mansion built by george washington's grand nephew a gigantic mansion with two full-size houses on either with the full-size house on either side um, which were the slave quarters, mm -hmm. each big enough to hold two families, and then this gigantic mansion in the middle. Um, but we were in the barn, the old cattle barn, the cattle auction house that had been converted into dorms. And, mm -hmm. uh, I sat at the head table for the first dinner, and Robert said to us, you're very bold sitting at the head table. And then I introduced myself as the person he'd spoken to on the phone 
-hmm. a year or so before. So, so he didn't he didn't give me too much trouble. <laughs> I'll tell you something else about that course, which was um, those were obviously very early days in guitar craft, and the rule was no irrelevant questions. You couldn't ask about David Bowie or Eno or anything like that. No irrelevant questions, but you could ask anything you want. If you could count four in one hand and five in the other and speak at the same time as you were doing that. Now, when I was 10 years old, my eldest sister, the ethnomusicology student had taken me to a series of lectures called new dimensions in music. Mm -hmm. And at one of these lectures, the lecturer had divided the audience into two halves and had us count to 20 and had half the group clap on the multiples of four and the other half clap on the multiples of five. Mm -hmm. And I, at 10 years old, I heard this sound. I thought, oh, that's cool. So I went home and banged out some polyrhythms on the piano and learned how to do them. And I showed up at Guitar Craft and I'd been doing this stuff since I was 10. I was like, not everybody can do this. So, so I think Robert noticed that that was actually not a problem for me. <laughs> Four against five was not an issue for me. And I think that's one of the things that uh, convinced him to persuaded him to invite me to come back as an assistant instructor. <laughs> yeah, wonderful. I mean, I, I had my level one in 91 and that was still early days somehow, like looking back now, <laughs> obviously back then I, I, I didn't know. I mean, like my advantage was, um, and I, I can't remember if I ever told you, but I had no idea really about Robert or his background or anything. I only knew the music. And um, so while a lot of the others were very, uh, imp let's just say for lack of a better word, very impressed by Robert, I wasn't that impressed. I was very relaxed with him. And somehow that was, that was a great foundation for actually learning uh, from him and observing him and and making the best out of the like few minutes that I really only had with him in person. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I still remember that there was a time when I, um, had kind of like worked on, on polyrhythms again, let's say like maybe 10 years ago or so, or 15 years ago. And then I, I realized like after I had completed my, my practice, let's say, and, and I was able to do these things like 13, against 15 and blah, blah, blah. And then I realized, oh, okay, that's something that Robert asked me to do 13 years ago in our last personal meeting. <laughs> so like that, that's, that's like the kind of influence he had on me. Like he gave me these very, uh, you could say specific, but in the widest sense, like really broad uh, tasks to work on, which I think I'm still sort of processing. Yeah. And, and that's, that, that's why to me, he was the perfect teacher. I couldn't be more grateful. Um, have, you know, having met him was like maybe the best, best thing that happened to me in terms of my musical life to say. Yeah. Yeah. Guitar craft, guitar craft has, has so far <laughs> mm -hmm. been a pretty extraordinary journey. Yes. Yeah, and I, I haven't been connected really for uh, 23 years now. Like there was this this moment where um, on a course in 98, we had the, uh, the closing, closing feedback 
sort of like circle, let's say, of like saying like, what, you know, just saying goodbye, basically. And I literally said goodbye in that moment. And I didn't, it didn't plan it. You know, it was just like, it felt like I need to go out and do my thing and apply what I had learned. And I, I never returned after that for some reason. Which, which was, it was really a surprise to me. I, you know, I'd expect, uh, I had expected for uh, it to continue for a much longer time, but it does still resonate. And maybe that's the way that I'm connected to it. Okay. Yeah, I, I doubt there are many people who went through a, even a single guitar craft course whose lives were not yeah. pretty seriously affected by it. Yes. In all yeah. kinds of ways. Yeah. 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 So um, when I met you, uh, which was like the early early 90s, maybe 92, I think it must, must have been 92, mm -hmm. um, you were already um, you had a really great reputation and then meeting you it was uh, it was wonderful and you were you're a wonderful teacher as well and uh, like what really struck me about you was this the combination of the musicality and also the focus on the calisthenics let's say of of playing and um, and that's something that also I still I still do like I'm, I'm interested in like the whole package let's say um, <laughs> and um, and so coming from like I'm interested in like when did you become the player that you were in the context of guitar craft? Were you like that before guitar craft, or did it come through guitar craft? No, um, I, when I came to guitar craft, I had been playing for thirteen and a half years, mm -hmm. and I was. Uh, I quite honestly, I was a faker. Mm -hmm. I didn't really know much about music. I had some of this sort of other knowledge because of the ethnomusicology and the polyrhythms and things. I had something that not everybody had. So I was kind of interesting to people. I mean, I was in a, you know, a prog rock cover band and I could play Lark's Tongues Part Two. And I knew that there was one bar of 11 and then a bunch of bars of 10, which most people didn't even know, you know, things like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, learned a couple of Steve Howe parts and things, but I really didn't know what I was doing. And in our first circle, in my first guitar craft course, Robert came around in front of us and played a few notes while we were playing. And when he stood in front of me and played, it really hit me. I know nothing about playing the guitar because the single note or two or three notes that he played jumped out of the instrument with such life and presence and a sound you know i was kind of think 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 and robert's boom this stuff this sound comes out hmm. so and at the end of that course i thought he's not going to ever want to see me again <laughs> and of course it turned out differently but i was very very lucky to be given this opportunity he invited me to come to claymont and live there and be his assistant and in between courses i had nothing to do but practice and that's where that's where it began. I mean, I was 25, 26 years old. And that's where I began actually practicing guitar. It's it's so rare to get that opportunity at that time in one's life. And, it, you know, I would be a much better player if I had done that when I was 13, 14, 15 years old, spent that much time practicing. 
but I was given this opportunity to develop my playing technique. And I had some experience. I had the experience in Turkey. I had, uh, you know, experience with other things, which, which benefited me, I think. But it really wasn't until my mid-20s that I began to develop in that way. And I had a mind for it. You know, I could come up with lots of interesting permutations. And I had the ability to, discrim to discriminate what were the useful permutations and which were the less useful permutations, things like that. So. Yeah, which is very important. <laughs> yes. Uh, so in the Turkish tradition, the ones that you studied, the classical and the folklore, let's say, uh, was there any focus on, on technique or something like that? Or was it all based on learning learning pieces? It was all based on learning pieces. The technique came with the pieces. And if a particular technique was called for, you were taught it in the context of the piece. There were no, there were no exercise books or scale books or arpeggio books or anything like that. Mm -hmm. And you learn by listening. You know, the, there, there are books now, and there were some then that described it. The Turkish music system is based around makams, which is more similar to ragas than to scales, I would say. But a makam has a particular set of notes that might be a little different in ascending and descending forms. And the upper register might have slightly different notes, and the lower register might have slightly different notes. And it might have certain other makams that it's more likely to refer to or modulate to, and certain makams which you would never mentioned in the presence of this makam and things like that. So there are all these things, but you learn them by hearing really, or by making mistakes and your teacher telling you. <laughs> so my, my teacher, Neshtat Yashar, who passed away just over a year ago, um, he had a printing shop. And this was, this was one of the, you know, to put it crudely, one of the five greatest musicians I've ever known. He made his living as a print shop owner in Istanbul. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, and he had a little glassed off office in his print shop. And I would go and sit there all day and practice and he would play things for me. And you know, the Turkish scale, the Turkish classical theory says that the octave is divided into 24 or maybe 25 notes, depending on who you ask. Mm -hmm. um, they are not strictly speaking quarter tones the way we would say it, it's not 12 tones and then each of those is divided in half. It's more like you have C, C a little bit sharp, C a little bit more sharp, C a little bit more sharp, D. Mm -hmm. D a little mm -hmm. bit sharp, D a little bit more sharp, E. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, there are various theories that go back to their understanding of Pythagorean commas and things like that about how big those intervals are, but it's really by ear. Mm -hmm. But Nejda Bey could, he, I would play a passage of music with a bunch of notes and he could hear me make a mistake of a ninth of a whole tone mm -hmm. in a passage of notes. No, that's the wrong note. It's this note. I mm -hmm. mean, because it's the wrong sound. Now this also, he, he heard these things as, as a sound and he would say to me, when I was practicing, he would say, make this sound. And then he would play a bunch of notes. And for the longest time, I thought he was saying, play these notes in this order with this inflection and these dynamics and that kind of thing. And sometime later, some years later, I realized, no, to him, that whole sequence was a sound. Yeah. That was a sound. Mm -hmm. It's like I say a phrase, I say a sentence, you know, to be or not to be, that is the question. 
that's a single phrase. Yes, it's made up of syllables and words and things, but you know, if I say to be or not to ba, that is the question, you hear the mistake. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. that's what it's like for him. That's what it was like for him. It was a sound, a single sound. And when I finally recognized that, that was another huge inflection point in my understanding of music. Yeah, it's uh what I find fascinating is that you went from a world that's that rich in microtones and, uh, as you say, sound rather than concept, okay? Uh, to make it like not an intellectual concept, but something you experience as sound and something that trains your listening where, you know, that's what, it's, it's what it sounds like to me that what you learned in Turkey was listening. Right, and then you went. You go from there to guitar craft, where the instrument is tuned in the pentatonic scale, the Western pentatonic scale. Right. An attempt at being equally tempered. <laughs> yes, yes, and equally. It's uh, it's it's fascinating, you know. And you know what I what I, you know, I I love the um, the record that you mentioned earlier, uh, Native mm -hmm. of the Rain, right, um, which. Uh, is the 12 string guitar but the way that you that you sort of make it sound is is very like you used the word earthy before for the turkish music right it's very much ground very and that and that's kind of like what kind of comes through your playing there and i think the only other record that i heard you play on before that was ophelia's shadow uh which is again is a completely different animal yeah and so, uh, <laughs> yeah. so uh, just because I think that uh, there is a, a lot of information about that time um, uh, out there about like this overlap between the uh, the Fripp Fripp uh, band that was later called Sunday All Over the World and your involvement with this, the same group of people um, playing Ophelia's Shadow. How did that all play out? <laughs> Well, there's some uh, there's some stories to that, and, and not all of them are are of pleasant memory. Okay. Um, but they were part of my part of my journey for sure. Mm -hmm. um, but I want to go back to to one earlier point first, which is, mm -hmm. you know, in my my development as a guitarist, um, there are sort of two major strains guitar strains. One is the world of guitar craft, and the other is my experience with Ralph Towner, um, who, um, you know, I discovered Ralph because a record of his appeared in my record collection when I had about 15 records, you know, when I was quite young. I, I still, to this day, have no idea how that record got into my collection, but it was the first Solstice record, and it, again, completely changed my life. Never heard anything like that and wound up becoming a, a friend and student of Ralph's. But, but I sort of, you know, this is an oversimplification, but I see these two strains as on the one side, the guitar craft side is if you're playing with the proper technique, you will make the sound you wish to make. And the Ralph Towner side is if you are making the sound you wish to make, you're playing with the proper technique. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Ralph is a highly trained classical guitarist. He studied for two years with Carl Scheidt in Vienna, at the Vienna Conservatory. Um, 
So he, the technique he's got, but he lives in the world of sound and music. You know, the, the lowest possible outcome when Ralph Towner picks up an instrument is music. Mm -hmm. That's the least you <laughs> possibly get out of anything he plays. Um, but those two approaches, you know, I'm very fortunate. I, I got to work with both, both of these amazing schools and they, they meet to me and where they meet is in this part about the sound you wish to make. You have to have that feedback loop. You have to actually be able to hear the sound you're making mm -hmm. and make the sound you, you wish to make. And, um, you know, which means all that stuff, you have to be able to get out of the way. You have to have a highly developed technique so that your fingers respond on demand, the demand of the music. They don't do things when they get around to them. They don't stop doing things because they get tired. You don't, you don't play a note and then forget about it. You play a note and you play every note you play. You play the whole note, the beginning, the middle, and the end of each note that you play. You know, mm -hmm. all those things. So mm -hmm. that's yeah. kind of how I see that. But yeah, that, that connects. That connects with the, with the experience in Turkey, right? I would say. Yeah. Very much, very much. Yeah. So now I've lost the original question. Which was, oh, it, it was the Ophelia's shadow experience. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> so in uh, around 1990, I guess, 1989, 1990, um, you know, I'd been involved with guitar craft for a few years. Um, there had been a couple of possible King Crimson projects um, that Robert had had asked if I would be interested in being involved with. And um, one was the soundtrack to Neuromancer, which he was offered. And then that fell apart because the, the man who owned the rights was being a, an asshole. Mm -hmm. And the project never happened. That's why there's never been a film about Neuromancer, the book. And then the second one was a, a possible reformation of King Crimson. Um, that Robert had some very specific ideas about and asked me to be part of. And then he went to London and had some meetings with his record company and they had very different ideas. And Robert called me and said, I'm very sorry. I hope you won't be, you know, too disappointed, but this is not going to happen. Mm -hmm. So those were two possible entry points into King Crimson for me, which were taken away, which, you know, it's a disappointment, but mm -hmm. I understand that's just, you know, I, I, I totally trust Robert's sense of what's right for him and for so uh, and for King Crimson. So, um, so, so Tony, I had heard about this. So I, I, I knew about this. Um, let me ask you to which extent were, were things set in motion? I mean, was there any music played? Was there anything no. discussed at all? Or no, it was all it was all in concept. Both, okay. both of those mm -hmm. projects, the Neuromancer mm -hmm. project and the, the recording project. Mm -hmm. um, but then the next thing that happened, uh, well, during the first level three course in England, Robert had kept saying that his wife, the English pop star Toya, wanted one of the members of the league to write a couple of songs for her new album or to write a song for her new album. And I thought she meant one of the guys in the group who was kind of a pop star kind of guy, rock star kind of guy. Turns out it later, transpired that she was talking about me. So I contributed a couple pieces to her album, uh, Desire, mm -hmm. and played in the studio and had some <laughs> a fun experience, which I can tell you about during the recording of that record. But then a couple of years later, she and Robert decided to form this band together. 
and Robert asked me to be the second guitarist. So of course I said yes. And it was going to be Trey who had just begun playing stick and myself and Robert and they were going to audition. There was a drummer who was going to come along, somebody Toya knew. And um, I think Bill Jansen was going to play sax. Mm -hmm. And the drummer decided not to do it for some reason. So they invited us to the first rehearsals. There was no drummer. And they said, we're going to audition drummers. And I showed up. And um, the easiest way to explain what happened was that I was not ready. I was mm -hmm. not at all ready for this. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I hadn't really played electric guitar for five years. Um, I had my electric um, beautiful custom built instrument and um, a couple of little dinky pedals, a couple of which I'd built myself from schematics in an electronics magazine, things like that. I had a dweebly little electric guitar sound. It was mm -hmm. thin and feeble. Mm -hmm. And Robert came in and plugged in his Les Paul and made this huge sound. Mm -hmm. And I knew, I actually knew pretty early on that mm, this. I am not ready for this. And Trey came in and Trey had uh, maybe a bit more experience than I had it at that point. But Trey had this enthusiasm that really uh, made a huge impression on me that I didn't have that energy. He, we brought these drummers in and Trey would jump out, start jamming with them and trying things and so on. And I was sort of sitting in the corner making my feeble little sound. And so after, <laughs> After a week or so, Robert came down to the house, Red Lion House, and said to me, you know, this is not going to work out. Um, thank you very much for coming. <laughs> and I was sent back to the States. And, uh, you know, it was a crushing blow uh -huh. to me. Uh -huh. But at the same time, I also understood, A, that I wasn't ready, that there were some things about being a musician that I still didn't get. Uh -huh. And B, that it was a liberation for me. And I suddenly saw that if I had, if I had gone that route, if I had been a Robert Fripp fan and then a Robert Fripp student, although I prefer to say a student of guitar craft, but to the rest of the world, it looks like a student of Robert Fripp. Mm -hmm. um, and then I was in his band as the second guitarist. I would never get any work for the rest of my life because if you want Robert Fripp, you call Robert Fripp. Yeah. And I had seen that happen with a student of Ralph Towner's who played unbelievably like Ralph Towner and never got any work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Because mm -hmm. if you want Ralph Towner, you call Ralph Towner. And uh, so in a way it was, it was a liberating experience to me. I, I could, I could step out of that shadow and begin to really find my own voice. And that was, I mean, that's part of why I picked up the 12 string guitar was because I knew I had to learn how to go out there on stage and be confident. And I, I, you know, at that point there was no going back. I wasn't going back to science graduate school or something like that. So I had to learn how to step out on stage and be in that role and able to pull it off. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that was a, it was a big crushing blow for me, but without it, I, I wouldn't be the man I am today. Yeah. It sounds like it was the uh, an opportunity to get to know yourself and to gather the energy to find out who you really are. Right. Yeah. 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 
drop all that other stuff and say, okay, I'm on my own. Am I going to be able to make it? I'm not going to, I'm not going to be riding Robert Fripp's coattails into rock superstardom. What am I going yeah. to do? <laughs> yeah. And I, and I, I understand even if it's an afterthought to just imagine what would it have been like to play with him in the, and you know, would you ever have gotten any work after let's say, um, But you know, for me, it has this question or a variation of that question has come up a few times in my career, as you can imagine. Maybe you know, if people don't believe when I tell them that I had to sleep on the question if I wanted to join Stickman. It wasn't. It wasn't an instant decision. I I had to think about it. I had to uh, give myself some time. Uh, you know, yeah. but anyway, let's go back. So I want to understand. So there are two records. Oh, uh, there is right. uh, all over the world and there's uh, Ophelia's shadow. So did you, did you end up playing on Ophelia's shadow? You did, right? Yes. Yes. So what happened was that uh, I had some demo tapes that I had been recording and I guess I sent them to Toya. And she really liked them. I mean, we had done, we, you know, I had played and written a couple songs for her. Actually, they were adaptations of guitar craft pieces mm -hmm. that I'd written mm -hmm. for that other album. But I sent her these demos and she really liked them. So she invited me to come make a record with her, a solo record, rather than the, the Fripp Frip project, which was how it was known before it became Sunday all over the world. Mm -hmm. um, and she was working with Trey and the drummer, Paul Beavis, wonderful, lovely man, amazing drummer. One of the most extraordinary sense senses of time I've ever known. He could, he could count in a drum machine, one, mm -hmm. two, three, four, hit go, and he was in time and everything, <laughs> it was unbelievable. <laughs> His sense of time was something else. Um, but she had, she had her band and then I came in and we worked on the material and um, I play on all the songs on that album except for two. Two of them are sort of I, I don't know if you would call them outtakes, but two of them are with Robert and they are really Sunday all over the world songs. But the rest, the other, all of them but two are, are pieces that I wrote with Toya. And Paul and Trey had input into them too, of course. Yeah. I think it's a it's an enjoyable record. Really, I really like it. Yeah. yeah. I listened to it again a while back and for the first time in many, many years. And I was a little surprised at how nice it was actually. <laughs> Yeah, isn't it amazing? Like in our in our memory, and maybe it's not just our memory. Maybe it's also our concept of the past that we think we must have, you know, been not as good as we are today. In a way, if you know what I mean, like yeah. like especially like people who are like us who are kind of like driven to to grow and to work. And um, for me, it's 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 always shocking listening back to all music of mine and saying, okay, I was already there hundred percent. I was already me. I was already perfect. I was already making the right decisions. And maybe it was the circumstances that weren't uh, ideal or the sounds that I had available or the technology I had available. But this has been like one of the major findings of being, uh, uh, you know, of, of, of still making music to realize that, uh, I some somehow I I was made to do this, uh, uh, you know. It which is which is funny that I say that because I I really, um, in so many ways, uh, 
I always had to force myself to do anything. Like, I don't know um, how to really put that into words, like as if there's like some, some deep sort of, uh, I don't want to use the word depression because it's not, that's not what it is, but like this anxiety, let's say, about the world that uh, tries to stop me from doing things. And then I, but I have this power to kind of push through that and do things anyway. And, and when I, like, when I joined Europa Strengthwire, I don't know if you know that story, but I actually, I just called them up and I said, I need to play with you guys. And I booked a ticket. I booked a ticket and I flew over and, <laughs> and I, I had learned the guitar parts and the viola parts because I didn't know what they would like, would they even need me? And so I just, no, I, I you know, but that's, <laughs> we had, we had some fun times together. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that, that was, that was a wonderful tour. And that was my first tour in the U S uh, yeah. Yeah. yeah it was, that was fantastic. And let just getting to hear you play, um, uh, you played the 12th string, uh, on that tour. This was just so wonderful. I remember pushing you guys to improvise too. It's like we're gonna we're gonna do a free improv every night. We're gonna do. Yeah, and you know we ended up making making a whole record of uh, free improvisations after after that tour. <laughs> you know, um, in the middle nineteen nineties, what you were saying about going back and listening to our old stuff. I mean, I've had I've had really a series of these sort of revelations, personal revelations and, and discoveries of music and things. One of them, another one of the difficult ones for me that became in the end good was in the middle 1990s when my, my marriage had broken up and I, had, I was homeless essentially, I got the offer to go to New Zealand and work with the New Zealand guitar craft circle. And I said yes, because I didn't have anywhere else to go. So I went there for five weeks and I showed up and, and here I was, Mr. Big Guitar Craft teacher from the United States. And I show up and I'm picked up at the airport and brought to the house of Nigel Gavin, mm -hmm. who is several dimensions of a greater guitar player and composer and musician than I will ever be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that was a huge shock again to me. It's like, what mm -hmm. am I doing here? I mean. I'm an ant <laughs> compared to Nigel. And, you know, it forced me again to, to confront some things about myself. Okay, I'm not the greatest guitarist in the world. I'm never going to be on that level. I'm not the greatest composer in the world. That doesn't mean that what I do doesn't have value. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that it's not unique. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't mean that people won't pay me for it. <laughs> <laughs> so here I am, this is me, this is what I have, and I will put it out there and we'll see what happens. You know, it also does not mean that it's not very powerful. You know, this is sort of like what I've, I, I'm still learning that, like I've, I just, I've just um, uh, given a course on improvisation, an online course, right? And one of the first things I say is, you don't need to be here. You can just go and improvise. You don't need any. You don't need anything to improvise music. And you, you really don't need anything. You don't need anything. Just do it, right? And, and that applies 
to all of the arts. That applies to all of being human. You're, uh, like you're all, already, you're perfect, right? And what you do can have an impact. And what you do, w w you know, what you do will have an impact. I would even go so far to say that, right? And so that's that's why um, I, I, I totally understand. Like, and you know, like then being in the situation to play with, with Tony, with Tony Levin, I mean, right? Uh, I didn't know what it was going to be like. It's actually like in a few days, it's going to be 10 years uh, the 10 year anniversary of the very first show I played with them. And I remember that I was like dreaming or thinking about what will this first uh, show be like. And then I realized like once I was on stage with them, I was actually capable of kind of like balancing the energies out rather than being uh, stomped flat by the energies, right? <laughs> but, like, but, but you just, you really don't know if you don't try. Yeah. Yeah, you know, um, it, it forced me, it also forced me to take a step back and think, okay, you know, I had been, I had been working so hard on technique and playing the fast parts and the high flyer parts and everything. And, and I thought to myself, I can step back from that. I don't have to, I don't have to worry about that. Other yeah. people can play those parts. Yeah. I, it, it pushed me a little bit back into that world of the sound. What is mm -hmm. what is the point of all this? What am I what am I really doing here? What is what was you know when I go back to that first experience hearing Coon Crimson, it's like here's this incredible guitar player with these amazing guitar and amplifiers, but what was that thing that I heard? What was that <laughs> that made me go whoa? What was but, that? But you know it clearly, and this this uh, you must have heard this before, but what was really uh, like one of your main works in the context of guitar craft was uh, Esquises, the piece Esquises, which has that quality as just like the, the quality that Luxton can have on you, right? It's that it draws you in and has like the an, an awkward uh, approach to harmony that is uh, that is sort of like really unique. And even though it's, you'd, you'd, it's these chromatic things and but it sounds very organic and and it just draws you in and it's beautiful. And when, once I had identified that that piece was, had been written by you and comparing that piece with the other guitar craft pieces, some of which were by Robert, right? I knew, okay, this guy is more of a composer. He actually listens to the sound, right? And, and, and I, I would still, I, I still think that was, that was like what also kind of like drew me to you as a teacher, like when you were offering these, uh, these uh, guitar circle projects, or whatever—I can't remember what it was called. But, um, in, and, in, in Andres in uh, the north of Italy, right? That was where yeah, I first met. Beautiful, you. That was a beautiful place. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And, it's funny and, you mentioned Esquises. That was that piece wrote itself in uh, two weeks in the summer of 1987, I think, 88. Mm -hmm. We were painting the ballroom at Claymont, mm -hmm. and it it was one of those things where I was playing this stuff and thinking, this can't go like that. <laughs> this can't be right. There's one spot in it where there's a, a section that begins with a minor ninth that resolves by the bass moving up a half step. And I thought, yeah. that, that doesn't happen. <laughs> yeah. There it was. That's how it went. 
Yeah, and you know, for for people like me, that's exactly what I what I pick pick out, right? I mean, this is just awesome. And then I analyze it and I see, okay, so the 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 melodic line is stronger than the harmonic content, so it doesn't matter that it's uh, that it's colliding in ways that are unexpected. But there's so much drive within the melody that things kind of like when they get together, they work as one unit. And and it was it's it's those. Uh, uh, it's that kind of magic that can exist in music that I find so fascinating. You just have to believe. <laughs> well, I, I think it's a particular it's a particular way of listening. It's not it's not believing. It's listening. <laughs> yeah, but uh, wonderful, and I, I you know just. And then I, I used to play that piece with with the trio and. Uh, and that was also around the time that I got to got to uh, know the um, Indian classical music, and um, I was in a free improvising orchestra at university, and like all those influences, then you know came together for me. Um, so you you said that you kind of like suggested that uh, when you played with us the Europa String Choir on that relatively short tour of the East Coast. Um, what is your history with improvisation? Well, that's a, that's a good one. Um, in 1979 and 1980, I attended two summer programs at the Naropa Institute in Boulder, Colorado, that were offered by Ralph Towner and Oregon, the group of Oregon. And I'd already known Ralph for a few years as a fan, um, just hanging out backstage with my girlfriend at the time, getting to know him. And so I showed up at the first of these and he, he knew me and so on. But I studied guitar with Ralph and composition with Ralph and not piano because I was not interested in piano at that time. And then Colin Walcott, who was still alive at that time, was, was teaching percussion and sort of ethnomusicology kinds of things. And Colin was, he was such a wonderful soul. And I spent a lot of time with that band, including traveling around with them a little bit on the West Coast when they were there. And, and Colin was the guy who kept that band from exploding. There were mm -hmm. some very strong personalities there and Colin would sort of hold things together. Uh, great loss. Um, but they, then the group, and, and then I went to uh, Glenn Moore's class because if you have a chance to hang out with Glenn Moore, you do it. <laughs> He's just a great guy. Anyway, they gave their individual classes. And then every day there would be a, an improvisation class, a group improvisation class, because that's something they do very well. And there's a story about Aaron Copeland hearing them improvise and saying to them, we classical composers work for years and years to make the sound that you guys just play. Yes. <laughs> so uh, um, that, was, that was very instructive to me, their approach to listening to each other. Um, I, I, there's only one actual quote I can remember from that class, which was from those classes, two summers of them. And, and they were extremely generous, those guys. They, they didn't charge an instructor's fee at all. Um, at Naropa, you paid $125 for room and board, and then whatever the instructor fee was on top of that. And they charged no fee, those guys. They just wanted to meet with their fans. It was, it was amazing. Um, but the, the one thing that I stuck with me from that class as a, as a quote, and I probably said this to you back in those days, was the most important thing in free improvisation is to listen for the ending. Mm 
Yes. <laughs> so with that as my guideline, <laughs> but it was, yeah, I was listening to those guys improvise and just the understanding that you have the freedom to, as you said, to, to do anything, whatever. You don't need to, you don't need to understand anything. You can throw paint at the wall, <laughs> make a sound and then follow it. Mm -hmm. Yes. So uh, how did that then just stay in your life? Like how did you stay connected with improvised music? Was that, uh, has that always been part of your, your life or? Well, you know, we had, we had some improvised music in the guitar craft con context. Um, it was a little different. We'd have our, what we'd call choose a note pieces and things like that in the circle and things like that. But, but um, I also, I was involved with, with musicians in Seattle, with a free improv scene in Seattle. Mm -hmm. um, the great saxophone player, Paul Hoskins, who passed away a few years ago, and Jeff Cranky and uh, the trombone player, Greg Powers, and various people in Seattle who, who, there was a whole free improv scene there, Dennis Ray, I, I have to mention Dennis Ray. Yes. Another guitarist I, I actually never met, Bill Horst, who was maybe the best known of the improvising guitarists in Seattle, other, other than Dennis. And uh, but somehow Bill and I have never met, oddly enough. I, I, I saw him that, at I saw him a couple of years ago at uh, the C C C Prog Festival. Yeah. yeah. Dennis has been a dear friend of mine since the early 1980s. So mm -hmm. we go back a long ways, and uh, wonderful, wonderful man, wonderful musician. Yes. But I was, uh, I did, I had a group with um, Jeff Granke, who has a lot of records out, and Rob Angus, who were sort of a duo. They put a band together called Storm. Jeff was always into weather, and I played bass in that band. Mm -hmm. And um, there, the pieces were sort of conceptual. And Jeff, Jeff did a bunch of stuff, <laughs> manipulated sound, and did a lot of writhing and strange vocal sounds into a microphone and so on and uh but we did we did a lot of concerts in the in the free improv scene in seattle i remember there was a there was a poet named um jesse uh what was his name i just can't think of it right now uh, well-known seattle poet one of these guys who was in and out of mental institutions real beatnik kind of guy uh, i wish i could remember his name I don't know why it's not coming back to me. I, I don't know, but um, he he would do poetry readings with musical background, and he asked me to play the bass in his band, and I was terrified of him. I mean, he was like wild, crazy, addict, mm -hmm. you know, shabby-looking guy. So I said no to him several times. <laughs> Jesse Bernstein, that was his name. Yeah. Jesse Bernstein, yeah. So, but I was in I was in that scene in Seattle for many years, and then you know when I left to move to Claymont, it was it was part of me, that whole aesthetic, that whole free improv aesthetic, through Oregon and through those crazy people in Seattle. Yes. So um, there's one side of you that we haven't discussed at all yet, which is the composer, and to me, composition and improvisation are very close. Uh, to each other, and um, you've been uh, writing music for for theater, right, for a long time. 
I remember you first mentioning that maybe even like when we first met. And um, uh, so please, please explain, but just kind of like maybe try to describe um, how you approach writing music with a purpose. Well, it's, it's very interesting and it, it relates a little bit to my work as a producer, which is what I do most of these days, much more than playing or, or writing. Mm -hmm. But um, so in 93, um, Trey Gunn's wife, Deborah, invited me to work with a theater company that she had been working with as managing director. And um, she had wanted Trey to work with them, but Trey was too busy jetting around the world with King Crimson and other things. And so she asked me. Um, they were about to begin working on a production of Romeo and Juliet, a theater company called Arden Party. And I said yes, and I walked into my first rehearsal with Arden Party and immediately knew there was that quality that quality there that I wanted to be involved with. These people were serious, professional. It was a little off, off Broadway company, but this was a company with an authentic creative vision and not arbitrary, weird avant-garde stuff like, oh, every time I speak, I'm gonna do this. You know, it was everything that happened was related to the truth of the text, bringing mm -hmm. that out. So um, I had been wanting to maybe work with dancers or write music for movies or something. And this was my opportunity to do that. And it was a, it was a serious education. I learned that when, when you're writing for theater, I don't know about movies or dance because I don't really do that. But when you're writing for theater, the music has to obey the laws of theater, not the laws of music. Mm -hmm. Yes. Uh, so I will write a piece, a beautiful, wonderful, complete little piece for a part of the, the play. And the theater, the director will say, you know what, we have to cut 15 seconds out. <laughs> so you go back and you redo it. <laughs> and this perfect little form that you created, you figure out how to make it 15 seconds shorter. And, you know, various things like that. There, there are several rules in, in writing for theater. They're unspoken, especially for off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway where you, you may be working with people who are extraordinarily talented, but mostly in one direction. So for example, if you're writing a song for somebody to sing and you want it to be interesting, you don't make the vocal part interesting because the actor cannot be concentrating on singing an interesting vocal part. They have to be singing a simple vocal part. You make the musical accompaniment interesting. Yes. <laughs> That's where the interest lies. Um, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You don't ever ask the music, the actors to take a cue from the music because they're not listening to the music. They are doing their lines and they're blocking and you can't ask them to also listen to the music. So you never take a cue. You never give the actors a cue in the music unless it's like a piano chord and somebody goes on stage, something like that. Yeah, yeah. So there are all, all kinds of things like that that you have to, you have to understand. But, but it was, you know, walking into that theater company, that was another one of the major parts of my education as a musician, because up until then, as a musician, I would walk on stage, play my music and walk off stage. In theater, you understand that there are lights and a set and costumes and a house manager and a stage manager and all these designers and people and Actually, those roles exist in any public performance. If I walk on stage to play a 12-string guitar set, there are lights 
and I am wearing something and there is a set and these elements can be intentional or they can be accidental. And so I learned a huge amount about design and production and creating an event and the flow and the rhythm and the emotional flow of a, of a performance event from these extraordinary designers and directors and actors that I've worked with over the years. It was a, it was a major part of my education, I would say, another, another one of these major parts, working with the brilliant director, Karen Kunrad, who is pretty much the only person I'll work with because I know as, you know, as crazy as the music world is, the theater world is several dimensions crazier. <laughs> but I know in the end, working with Karen, that the, that the end result is going to be extraordinary, a, a profound and moving experience of great depth. So, so I will always say yes to her. She just, I just agreed. I'm ha I have a phone call coming up in about 45 minutes with her and a, and a managing director to talk about our next project together. So. Wonderful. Yeah, sounds sounds fascinating because I have been thinking on and off about the uh, idea to write something that I so far I was calling an opera, but now hearing you describe what it is like to write for theater, music for theater, I think I'm more thinking about something like that, where where the music is part of the of the play rather than the play being part of the music. Yeah, it's funny because I walk into production meetings with all the designers, the costume designer and the set designer and things, you know, you have a, a whole series of production meetings. You have the first production meeting and, and then so on and so on. And the rehearsals begin and then you have your first run through, which is always what we would call in guitar craft, the middle, regardless of where it is in time, it is the point in the middle because you stumble through the first run through and you think we've got a paying audience coming in in three weeks and we aren't anywhere near close to being ready. How are we going to get there? But you have to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I go into the production meetings and I see these drawings of costumes and the models of the sets. And I think, how do these people come up with these ideas? It's, a, it's extraordinary, these amazing things. And after a couple of years, I thought, you know, they're probably thinking that about the music too. It's like, yeah. where's Tony getting these ideas? Yes. And it's nice having, you know, a director because it's really about making the director's vision come to life, realizing the director's vision. So we all have something that we can gravitate around that we can, you know, we're, we're working towards something. It may, it, it's, Karen can articulate it very well for the most part, um, but it's hard to put into words, but there's some vision, something that we are all working, some world that we are all working together to create. And, but we have the full run, run of our creative imagination to, to get there. Yes, yes. And in, in a context like that, do you use uh, uh, both acoustic instruments and ele electronics? Yeah, some quite a bit of it is well, it, it depends on the on the, the production. But I've done things where it's all recorded. I've done things where it's all live. I've done mixtures of things. There's a wonderful production of King Lear that we did in the in the late 90s, where we had um, bleacher seats like benches stacked benches where the audience was sitting. And for the storm scene, I took a couple of gigantic speakers and stuck them under the bleachers. And all the music had been, you know, on the speakers in front and everything up to that point. But then the storm scene hit and there was a blackout and three big flashes in the back of the auditorium. 
And then I hit a giant chord on my synthesizer with these speakers directly under the audience. <laughs> so there was. Yeah. Yeah, fantastic. There's also there's so there is uh, an actual physicality to the sound in that context as well. Yeah, beautiful. <laughs> yeah, I find that very inspiring. Yeah, it was it was great and, and yeah, wonderful to work with these creative, other creative, extremely creative people who taught me so much. You know, the, the professionalism of the actors is amazing. Their ability to to be consistent and energetic night after night. And, you know, for, for in rehearsals, the director will give a note, you know, during this moment in act three, line 27, uh, stand six inches farther to the right. And the actor will, from that moment on, do that. Mm -hmm. You know, they just, they know, they take the note, gets through to them and they do that every time. There's never any question that that's what they do. The other thing is working with somebody like Karen, um, her sense of rightness, of the rightness of a scene. It's like watching her put things together on stage and you know, you're working on a scene, working on a scene and she'll say something like that. So it'll be really close and not quite right. And then she'll say, oh, James, you know, take one step down and six inches to the left. And James will do that. And all of a sudden it's like, yes, that's it yeah. right there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just like, like panning uh, the bass guitar, like three dots to the right yeah. in the mix. <laughs> it's exactly, it's exactly it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. And so you're saying uh, production work is kind of like the main thing you do at the moment. Yes. Yeah. Much more producing mixing. Interesting. And, and so have you um, kind of always kept up with, with technology, with recording technology over the years? To some extent. I mean, there's way too much of it to keep up with mm -hmm. these days, especially. I mean, I have, you know, you look at the music technology magazines and there's 74,000 large diaphragm condenser mics out there. <laughs> you know, so you can go with the big names, but you know that the... the uh, U87s and things like that, or you can, you know, and I, I, I don't really keep up with it that much. Again, for me, it's more about the sound. How can I get to the sound I want to, I want to hear? So whatever it takes, you know, I do have a, you know, I'm amazed at the, what I can do in my living room on my iMac. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. I spend too much money on plugins, but <laughs> what else am I doing with my life? I have to say, I find it fascinating that, you know, the studio as, as a creative tool has evolved so much, like where, where, you know, some people say that music has gotten boring and blah, 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 and like the, the mainstream music is less interesting than it was 40 years ago and so on and so on. I think that just the, the, the creative tool that is the studio has really evolved into something very, very amazing. And as you say, it's available to us right, you know, at our, our desk. It's it's your iMac, it's my my MacBook here that I produce on. And that's that's all I need. And when I capture sound, I don't even worry so much about capturing the right sound. I sort of like take that as an inspiration, actually. If something is not the way that I expect it to be, then that 
you know, then I, I have to make it work. And that sparks creativity rather than uh, stifles creativity. And yeah. Yeah. And I do, I work with, I work with like, I'm, I'm producing right now the a new record by a group called the crown in Seattle. And mm -hmm. I worked on their first record and really enjoyed it. And, you know, I love producing because I get to, I get to listen a lot and mm -hmm. shape things and I get to play. I play some guitar solos and some other things on the record. It's like whatever is needed, whatever I feel is needed. But my philosophy as a producer is I'm, my job is to work with the artist to realize their creative vision. Mm -hmm. It's not really about me, it's about them. And, you know, I, I when I first meet with, with an artist or band or whoever, I'll tell them that. I'll say, you know, this is, this is how I see my job. It's to to assist you in realizing your creative vision. And that may, along the way, it may involve me asking you to work against your better instincts. Mm -hmm. And it probably will involve me working against my better instincts. But that's the aim. Mm -hmm. so. mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm, I have to say on, on, on my side of working as a producer, if I do that, it's still that in a way, I do want to give some of what makes me who I am to the process. So I, I, don't, I wouldn't feel comfortable removing myself completely from that equation, if you know what I mean. Like it's, it's, really, um, it's a really fine line. Um, well, and that's, I think that's probably what I mean by you know, asking them to work against their better instincts, because there's going to be yeah. something I hear. What I'm hearing in this piece is <laughs> this, and it may not be what you're hearing, but this is what I really think we need to, to do here. And yeah. I'll tell you, I'll tell you another story that I think relates to this. I, I love telling stories about myself. Um, unlike most people who don't like to do that. Um, this is, this is a, a Ralph Towner related story. So sometime in the, I guess it was the late 90s, early 2000s. I was living here in New York and I happened to read in the newspaper that Ralph Towner, that there was some piece by Ralph Towner that was commissioned as the prize winning piece for a piano competition it was gonna be played at Columbia University by the pianist who had won the competition. They commissioned this piece by Ralph Towner. And I thought, well, that's cool. I should go see that, you know? Ralph, Ralph was living in Sicily at the time, with his Sicilian actress wife. But I thought, well, maybe he'll be there. I don't know, but I should go hear this piece. So the day, I guess it was the day of the concert, my phone rings in the morning and it's Ralph Towner calling me in New York. It's like, Ralph never calls. I mean, he's a great guy, he's a dear friend, but he's not one of those people who just calls you up to chat, right? Mm -hmm. Especially not from Sicily. So Ralph, hi, he says, do you have a classical guitar? Uh, I'm playing at this concert tonight and my guitars are stuck in Rome. Oh. <laughs> and I said to him, you know, I have a, I have a Japanese built Oribe guitar that is not something you would ever want to play in concert. And he said, please bring it up. I, I need something. So <laughs> I grabbed the guitar and went up there. And fortunately, somebody else had shown up at the Ramirez. So Ralph played oh. the Ramirez. He was, he was kind enough to take my guitar, play a few notes on it and hand it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> but I went out to dinner with the, with the, guy who had picked him up at the airport, a, a saxophone player named Andy, I can't think of his last name. And Andy had gotten to know Ralph because he'd hired Ralph and Dave Holland to play on an album he was making. 
And he told me this story. Now this was, I was beginning to work as a session, you know, playing a few sessions and doing a little bit of producing. And I was, you know, I would get all worked up. Somebody wants me to come in and play guitar. Oh, I have to learn the pieces and, and come up with a part and a sound. And I have to get this perfect and walk in and nail it. So Andy tells me the story. He's hired Ralph and Dave Holland to play on his record. Ralph flies in. <clears throat> he opens his guitar case. The sheet music is sitting there. He hasn't looked at the music at all. <laughs> Doesn't have any idea what he's going to play. Um, he's fumbling around with stuff, trying to find things. The, the saxophone player, Andy, the guy whose session it is, is, is a, totally appalled. He's in the control room. Dave Holland is with him in the control room laughing at Ralph. <laughs> And Andy said to me, you know what? At the end of the day, I had these amazing Ralph Towner parts on my guitar, on my record. These amazing Ralph Towner guitar parts on my record. And I thought, you know, you hire Ralph Towner and you get Ralph Towner. Yeah. And I actually had a session booked about two weeks later with a band called Sun Palace. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm just going to relax. I'm going to show up at the session take the time I need to take to find a sound and come up with a part and just be relaxed and do what I do. They, they hired me because they want me on their record. Mm -hmm. So they're going to get me. So I went to that session and I was relaxed and I took my time and everybody was relaxed and happy. And I know that if I'd shown up there like really nervous and trying to get everything right, it would have been a very tense, very different situation. But that was another one of these things that changed my approach. It's like, oh, you know what? I don't have to, uh, they asked me to play. <laughs> so here I am. Exactly. And you are who you are at any yeah. given point in time. And they and may or may not use the part, whether yes. it's or not. I've had... You know, I love the editing process because you you take out stuff that you love and it makes things better. Yes. That yeah. you love may come back somewhere else and it may not. But. And, you know, it's also always about your own expectation in the sense of like, do I really, I mean, it obviously depends on the context, but there is no such thing as the right or the wrong thing. It's just like that somebody at the end has to make the call and decide, like, do yeah. we use this or do, do we yeah. not, right? Here are the possibilities. We choose this one. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And it's also that sort of editing, like, in our own heads, which I think we should really let go of um, even before or while we perform or, or when we improvise. It's really, uh, I've, I found it extremely detrimental if there is that voice that's trying to comment uh, on what I'm doing, or that's even trying to comment before I do anything. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. Am I going to do the right thing? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Wonderful. Hey, uh, Tony, so you have that uh, phone call coming up, So, but I have to ask you one last question. Okay. And I, I hope you don't, don't mind me asking. <laughs> so uh, what is the, is there still a work site in front of your house? Are um, people still building... Uh, no, I'll, show you what's, I'll show you what's in front of my house now and it's uh the snow is mostly gone i think the snow is all gone now but so yes. I, there's an empty lot uh -huh. and there's a, a as as you know marcus but probably not everybody who's listening to this knows i had a 12 year long construction project 
across the street from me. And it was like the old story of the frogs in boiling water, you know, it began these two huge concrete silos that looked like upside down Saturn V rockets appeared across the street where there had been a building that had been torn down. Developers had wanted to develop the site, but eventually the city bought it. Didn't know this at the time, but this construction project began and none of us knew that it was gonna be 12 years of heavy construction and blasting explosions underground and all this stuff. But the good news is mm -hmm. that it's over. <laughs> And that this was this was a construction project that um, was building a, an access point to the brand new third water tunnel into New York City, which for 125 years was served by two water tunnels from upstate. Now there's a third one. Um, so they can the main reason for building it was that so they could shut down one of the other two and do maintenance, which they'd never been able to do. So they're leaking billions of gallons of water and and knows you know what kind of dead rat carcasses they're going to find in there and things like that but but because this is an access point to the water project they can never develop the site so i will always have a little bit of a sense of space i won't have a building in my face out my front window which is an amazing thing in new york city they do plan before the pandemic hit, they had I had been to some neighborhood meetings where the city had agreed to spend a couple million bucks and turn it into a little green space, a little public park. Mm -hmm. People could sit and you know have lunch and there would be it's going to be artificial grass because they have to move trucks in and out regularly to work mm -hmm. on the water tunnels and things like that. But it was going to be a lovely little green space. I don't know if that money still exists. The city budget is devastated, of course, by the tax loss from the pandemic and everything. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, it's it's over, and eventually, maybe before I die, there will be a little park there. That's yeah, famous last words, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's been the the, uh, the explosions were something. The, the the blasting. The first time I was home, when they blew something up there, you know, the New York is built on rock, solid rock. So in order to do anything down below, you have to blow stuff up. Um, the first time I was home when one of those explosions happened, my response was, if that is a small controlled underground explosion, I don't ever want to be anywhere near a war. Yeah, it was terrifying. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I remember you being uh, very upset. It was really tough to live day after day with this construction noise for 12 years. Yeah, that's, uh, yeah I, don't, I don't even want to imagine. I'm still, it's been several years now that it's been over and I still am amazed at how quiet, <laughs> how quiet <laughs> it is now. But anyway. Anyway, thank you so much, Tony. It was wonderful to see you and to hear you and uh, to learn more about you even than I already knew. Thank you, Marcus. Great to talk to you and, and nice to have a chance to just talk about myself for a couple hours. That was, that's wonderful. And I, I encourage you to do that more. <laughs> well, I, hope, I, I hope I said something of value in there somewhere. I've been fortunate to have great friends and great teachers of various kinds throughout my life. But, you know, I hope I can reflect a little bit of what I've received back into the world. You really, you don't need to hope. It's just like it's just like making music. Like anything you do has a value. 
good final words. Yep. <laughs> okay, Tony. I, I, hope, I hope to see you again soon. Yes. Yeah. Come yeah. back to New York when you can. I will. Bye-bye right. for now. Bye-bye. Bye, Tony.